Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Sipe preaches out of Matthew chapter 16 with a message on the solid rock. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 13 through 19. This is the word of God for us this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. May God illuminate this truth in our hearts this morning. Thank you. On Wednesday evenings, we've been studying a quick course in the history of biblical interpretation. What are the the things that that we believe and where does that come from historically. Well, one of the issues to be considered in the early church is whether to consider portions of the Bible as literal or figurative. And we learned last time that we met that there were two early schools of theological study and theological thought. One was centered in Alexandria in uh, in, uh, Egypt and the other to be considered was in um, Antioch. The allegorical approach to understanding the Bible, metaphors, and those sorts of things uh, came about in Alexandria. And the literal approach to understanding God's word was something that was considered and developed in Antioch. But you see, we still have those same struggles today. How do we understand the Bible? And are we to understand the Bible literally or figuratively? And when it is appropriate to look figuratively at the Bible, how does that then connect with the rest of God's word? So if we were to consider verse 18 this morning, take a look at that again. If we were to consider it on the basis of literal versus figurative interpretation, we would, I think, miss the mark of what is actually intended there in the Greek because the question surrounding this particular verse is grammatical and it's exegetical in its construct. See, verse 18 reads in the English, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or in some translations, hell, will not overcome it or prevail. Now, the particular verse is often said to extol the importance of Peter as a disciple in the expanding early church. And when Christ said, as we have just read this morning, upon this rock I will build my church, are we to interpret, as the Roman Catholic Church does, that the rock Jesus is referring to is the Apostle Peter? You see, it's important to the the traditions of the Catholic Church that there has an unbroken succession of leadership back to Christ. And in this attempt between the first appointed bishop, Lionus, in the church in Rome, and Christ, 
they place Peter, who is presumed to have ministered in Rome, and personally consecrated Linus as bishop after him. But whether the line of succession is accurate or not, that I think is secondary to the understanding that Christ himself appointed Peter as head of the church after his departure. How are we to, to understand that? Well, the importance of understanding this, port, this particular point has a direct relationship to what is truly to be understood in that early church because to be its kergama, as we learned that word the, the other Wednesday night, which is what the early church preached, that's what it means, as the core of the early church's oral tradition, it's kergama about Jesus and salvation through Christ was central to the church. To get off track with this particular verse brings us headlong into a debate as to the importance of Peter in the early church. What did Christ really mean when he said that upon you, Peter, I will build my church? So what is it that Jesus meant when he said to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it? Well, this one passage is the ground upon which we've been waging a controversy since the early days of the church. On this rock will I build my church. What rock is Christ speaking of? Well, the Roman Catholics say that, that Christ meant Peter. And in the English translation, it would seem to be so. What could be plainer in the English? They ask, doesn't Petros, which is the Greek word, mean a rock? And so here in the foundation of the papacy, around the inner border of the dome of St. Peter's Basilica, there runs this passage around it in letters of gold, thou art Peter, or Petros in the Greek, and on this rock, Petra, a second Greek word, will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's written right in the dome. But the rock refers to here is not Peter. It's not Peter. And I say that for the following reasons. And the first reason is this. Our text does not say it. Our text doesn't say it. The words Petros and Petra, or rock in the English, are not identical. Petros is masculine. Petra is feminine. One is a stone, the other is a rock. Peter is a small stone, Christ is saying. It plays upon these particular words. You see, in response to Peter's declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Petros, a stone hewn out of the rock. You are a small part of the rock. And I tell you that you are Petros. The Apostle John, who was the intimate friend of Peter, was called Theologus. Theologus from the fact that he was an instructor in theology. 
His theological system being substantially that God is love. And so Christ might have said to him, Thou art theologus, and on this theology of yours, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But he didn't say that. The Apostle James, the brother of John, was an evangelist in that he declared the gospel of salvation. Christ might have said to him, had occasion called for it, Thou art James, son of Zebedee. You will be called the evangelist. And upon your gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But he did not. And my second ground for rejecting the interpretation which makes Peter the rock foundation of the church is its unreasonableness. It's not reasonable to consider that that's what Christ meant. The church is the great organism through which God is working for the deliverance of the world from sin. And by the way, recent statistics show a decline in the belief of Christians that claim it is their personal responsibility to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. They're believing instead that it's the church's responsibility. A 25% decline in that belief over the past 25 years. And it would be presumptuous, I think, to suppose that God would found this institution, the church, upon a man, a, a fallible man at that, and Peter, of all fallible men. And imagine the chaos and the confusion that would long ago have resulted in the moral universe had God abdicated his sovereignty over the church and allowed Peter to take the reins, but happily he never did. What then was this rock? What is the rock that Christ is speaking of here? It was the good confession which Peter made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was the rock, that understanding, and upon that, Peter, a portion of that, church that will stand on this belief, you shall be called that rock, hewn out of the greater rock of understanding that Christ is the Son of the living God. And that's the rock upon which the, Christ, the church is built. The church stands upon the fact that Christ is the Son of the living God. And at this time, our Lord was pursuing his journey through Caesarea Philippi, his face set steadfastly, as it says in the, the Gospel of Mark, toward the cross. He wanted his disciples to be informed as to his divine character and his mission here on earth. But they hadn't yet been able to really comprehend who he was and what he spoke about. Now Christ is moved to inquire of his disciples, who do men say I am? And to this gave various answers. but. He questioned, who do you say that I am? And then Peter gave his answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was pursuant to these words of Peter that Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven, and giving him his new name, Petros, in recognition 
of his profound words of understanding. It was a great discovery of truth. And the disciples knew that Jesus was a wonderful person. They had heard his, his sermons. They'd seen his miracles and had taken note of his unique character. But it remained for Peter to discern the fullness of the truth. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, whom kings and prophets longed to see and died without sight of it. You are the Christ from all eternity ordained and anointed to save the people from their sins. The explorer Balboa stood with amazement when from the hills of Panama he saw the Pacific Ocean stretching far into the distance. It was a breathtaking discovery. Can you imagine stepping over a ridge and seeing the expanse of the Pacific Ocean before your eyes for the very first time, as far as you could see, the expanse of water. What a marvelous discovery, but not comparable, I think, with what was burst forth upon the vision of Simon, son of Jonah. It was the mightiest of all truths, and in it was the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection. It had been hidden from the eyes of the wise and the the prudent, only to be revealed to this fisherman. The rabbis hadn't understood it. Jesus of Nazareth seemed to them, as the, the Bible says, a root out of a dry ground, and there was no beauty that they should desire him. But Simon Peter grasped that glorious truth. This Nazarene prophet, a man of the people, the king of kings, disguised in flesh, now all his miracles were made clear. The secret of his wondrous sermons was explained. The great discovery was made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the interpretation of the words of Jesus, making his own headship to be the foundation of his church, is in keeping with his biblical reason. And the very making of Peter the rock is not reasonable. To make Peter the, the church, the, the head of it. You see, the history of the church is written in two volumes. One entitled Sinai and the other Calvary. The law was given on Mount Sinai and formed the basis of that old economy. The law that was written by the finger of God himself. The same God who afterwards robed in flesh entered the agony of the cross. He stood in the midst of that economy of law, the rock foundation of the ancient church. It would be presumptuous, I think, and preposterous to say that Moses was that foundation of what church, that particular church, since he was only the connection of it by the law that was the intermediary who carried those tables, the tablets, down the hill on that mountainside and broke them in anger. And the gospel was proclaimed from Calvary, written by the pierced hand of God himself, the incarnate God, who stood then and stood forever in the midst of that gospel, that rock foundation of the Christian church. And what part does Peter take in that? Only the part of a herald leading this little company of a 
of the apostles whose numbers were destined to be multiplied in that great procession of evangelists whose feet, as the Bible says, are beautiful upon the mountains because they carried the good news of life. And there isn't any justification for interweaving or intertwining the, the name of Peter with that of Christ in the primacy of the church. If Phidias, who was that famous Greek sculpture, if he were banished for placing his name in the corner of the shield of Anthena, what would be said of the presumption which places Peter in the seat of the only begotten Son of God? Well, there's a third reason as well. The view of Peter is in keeping, I think, with Scripture. Scripture itself supports the view that our focus must remain on Christ. The Bible is divine revelation, and it's given to us in two volumes, which we call the Old and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we find Christ from the very beginning. In Genesis, it says, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And as you read on through the Psalms and the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, which ends in the messianic hope of Malachi, where does Moses stand then in this Old Testament? What part does he have in that? In the midst of the camp with his hand uplifted toward the brazen serpent, you remember, because of the sins of the Israelites, that prophetic symbol of Christ crucified, and Moses is crying, look and live. That's the part he has in it. He's a herald for the coming Messiah. The New Testament is also full of Christ from its opening picture of the child in the manger to that vision at the very end of the apocalypse where the, the great multitude encircles the throne of the crucified one saying, thou art worthy to receive honor and power and glory for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests unto God. And where does Peter stand in the New Testament? In the midst of the congregation at the Pentecostal time that he spoke, speaking not of himself but of another, you men of Israel, he said, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Him have you taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God has raised up, saying, sit on my right hand until I make your foes your footstools. Do you see that Christ is everything and Moses and Peter are nothing in comparison except as a weight upon Christ. The Bible says, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, that he that believeth shall not make haste. And the Bible also says, No man can lay any other foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But there's a fourth reason, and this view furthermore is in keeping with history. It's in keeping with history. In point of fact, there never was a time when by the great body of believers that Peter was regarded as the rock foundation of the church or as her vicar 
of God on earth, as the Roman Catholics believe the Pope is. His authority, which never reached a claim of infallibility, was called in question, you recall, when Peter stood and opposed him to his face and his own co-presbyters ruled against him. The man chosen to moderate the first of the great councils was not Peter, as would have been a logical choice had he been regarded as the head of the, the body of believers in that day, but instead it was James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And in the council at Nicaea in 325 AD, where the great controversy was debated respecting the, the very question, there was no mention of Peter's primacy, but everything centered on the headship of Christ. Nor was the proposition of papal supremacy founded on the primacy of Peter. It was never formally suggested until we reached the shadows of the Middle Ages. And it was this in part that spurred on the, the Reformation. It was the city of Rome under the shadow of St. Peter's Basilica that Luther, climbing the Scala Sancta, the holy staircase, heard, as it were, a voice from heaven declaring to him the great doctrine of justification by faith and the only begotten Son of God. In all this, history agrees with Scripture in the proposition that there is no principal person whatsoever aside from Jesus Christ himself, except, of course, that Antichrist, whom Paul calls the son of perdition, who, as the Bible says, exalts himself above all that is called God and declaring himself to be God, sits in the temple of God and is worshiped as God. So let's bring this discussion down to a, a practical place. From the proposition that the church is founded upon the headship of Christ. We may proceed now, I think, with three important inferences. First, here's the basis of church unity, the basis of church unity. All denominations are, practically speaking, one in Christ, and they are one in nothing else. It was Pope Leo the 13th in the 19th century who vainly issued an encyclical which called upon what he called all the separated brethren, that's you and me, the separated brethren to come under the authority of the Roman church, that is to say as an acknowledgement of the primacy of Peter, the only magnet in all the universe which can gather up and bind together the various parts of that great fellowship is Jesus Christ, who said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. No church, not any of the churches in Chestnut Hill or across the country can be ruled out of the circle if it acknowledges the supremacy of Jesus and his teachings. There's a practical an effective unity among all bodies of believers that can say one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father 
of us all. But secondly, a second practical inference here, the unity of the church also rests, it rests in this same proposition. No proclamation of good news can be the, of universal application unless it rests upon the universality of the grace of Jesus Christ. Who is Paul, the Bible asks, or who is Apollos, or who is Cephas, or who is Wesley, or who is John Calvin, or who is Pope Francis. Let Christ be all in all. There can be no substitution of the name Peter for that of Jesus Christ on the cornerstone of the church unless it is announced from heaven that God so loved the world that he gave Simon, son of Jonah, to redeem it, which he has not. There can be no gathering of the nations under the shadow of the Vatican until it can be truthfully said the blood of St. Peter cleanses from all sin, which he does not. But thirdly, a third important practical consideration, here also is our assurance of the perpetually and purity of the church because it rests upon the rock of ages. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The words of Luther at the dedication of the Vietnam Chapel were wisely spoken when he said this, how must Christ be everything to us? And to whom Christ is everything, all else is nothing. He has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is all and in all, end of quote. And because the church is centered in the personality of Jesus, his word alone is her personal guarantee of safety. Oh, where are kings and empires now of old that went and came? But Lord, thy church is praying yet a thousand years the same, unshaken as the eternal hills. Immovable she stands, a mountain that shall fill the earth and house not made with hands. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've come before your throne and open your word, we ask that you would reveal its truth and understanding that Christ, your Son, is Son of all. And through him, we are justified. And by his act on the cross, we are redeemed. Help us to see that Peter found the truth not by the hands of man, but by you and the Holy Spirit that in that truth he found that Jesus Christ alone was your son. And upon that truth will that rock be put forth. And that Peter was a stone hewn out of that great truth. And upon that great truth which Peter learned from you, 
the church still stands on one person, Jesus Christ, and his redemptive work. Help us, Heavenly Father, to take that truth and to be that Petra, that rock, stone, hewn out of that great rock of truth. Help us to be faithful to the understanding that Christ alone is our salvation. And in that truth, may we continue to build this church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.